Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Here in this church, we study God's Word chapter and verse. If you'd turn to Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews 9, as we continue our journey. And again, we're going to take an entire chapter, so 28 verses this morning. Uh, Because of the context, uh, it is important that we do keep God's Word in context. Amen. So uh, we're going to tackle that. How many of you have a specific place? Maybe you're getting to that age to where you're thinking about perhaps... Uh, your latter years in retirement, how many of you have a favorite place on earth you think you'd like to live? Uh, I do. I have a few of them, actually. Um, Some of them involve beaches and some of them involve mountains, but I can think of places that, wow, it would be wonderful to live there. Can I tell you that heaven's going to be way better than that? Amen? So today, as we tackle this subject of the heavenly sanctuary, we we really are looking ahead to a world that to us is unseen. In other words, we have to believe that heaven is what the Bible declares it is, that God is not deceiving us, that we have a heavenly dwelling place. And in fact, we live, at least temporarily, between these two homes, We have an earthly home, and we have a heavenly home. We we have that which is promised and invisible, and we have that which we can see. And sometimes we get a bit confused about which is which. And we begin to rest and trust in what we have here, and we take our eyes off of what we will then have. The Jewish people, when you talk to them about their city, uh, at Passover, most Jewish people will tell you that as they're celebrating, perhaps next year in Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Now, we call it the city of peace, but to them it was a representation of God's heavenly city, and in fact the name actually means you shall see God. That's what it actually means. And so as you think about that, one day you're going to go to your heavenly Jerusalem, you shall see God. In the meantime, we're stuck here on this rock, on this earth, and it's not quite the same. And it's interesting, as Jesus said there in Matthew chapter 22, that we are to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's, and includes yourself. As God's children, you're to give yourself fully and wholly devoted to God. And so today, we'll pick up Hebrews chapter 9, as we look by faith at what we cannot see, this beautiful time when we will one day step out of these earthly tents, this earthly tabernacle, and actually dwell in our real heavenly dwelling place 
uh, with the Lord. Would you join me? We'll pray. We'll pick up here in verse 1 of Hebrews 9. Father, thank you for the promise of heaven. And Lord, we pray that it would be a reality uh, in our beings today, that we would think rightly about what lays ahead. And so take your word and mold us with it, fashion us uh, in the way that we should go. In Jesus' name, amen. And then indeed, verse 1 of Hebrews 9, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. And so this is looking back, and it applies to us in this sense. We, We have things that God's called us to do and called us to be while we're here. We are supposed to be holy as he is holy. Our lives are supposed to be like Christ. That's what our name actually means as we call ourselves Christian. It means to be little Christ or imitators of him. For the tabernacle or a tabernacle was prepared in the first part in which the lampstand and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And so this is giving us a picture into first the tabernacle in the wilderness and then also in the very same way because the temple was fashioned after the tabernacle. So this is a picture of how God's people, the Jewish people, understood they would see God in in the sanctuary that they were worshiping in. And behind the second, a veil, part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had a golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had manna. So we're told now what was actually in the Ark of the Covenant, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. So three things are inside of the Ark of the Covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now these things had thus been prepared. And the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle to perform services. But into the second part the high priest alone went once a year. And not without blood. Which he offered for himself and for the people's sins. Committed in ignorance. And the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was standing. Do you understand what's being said there? It was just a picture. The actual way in was not yet manifest while the temple stood. It was symbolic for the present time in which both the gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience. In other words, all of that glory and all of that splendor, all of that beauty and majesty, all of the temple sacrifices and everything that went on, even though it was designed by God to show them who God was and how holy he was and what was necessary to enter in his presence, it actually didn't accomplish the final purpose of taking care of our sin debt. It couldn't clear the conscience of the debt of sin. And it concerned only food and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. And that doesn't mean the reformation, which would come in the 1500s, but reformation of the soul, the actual transformation that occurs when you understand who Christ is and you believe on his name, you then are truly reformed. You go from being dead to being alive. 
And so this beautiful picture of what will one day be permanent, our eternal home, our heavenly home, which we now look forward to. You see, Moses and Abraham kind of had a picture. They, they understood that there was a heavenly home and that one day they were going to go there. But sometimes people confuse this building that we're sitting in right now with the real tabernacle. Matter of fact, I've gotten emails and letters concerned people that say we should just keep this building open 24 hours a day because it's the temple, the tabernacle of God. And while I appreciate the sentiment, it's also completely false. The tabernacle of God is actually in you. Your heart is actually the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. This building is just a building. We use it for the purpose of gathering together the body of Christ so that we can corporately study his word and pray and praise. And that's all well and good. It's important. But this is no more holy than your house. This is just a building. It's made with hands. It has no holiness component to it. It is simply a place where the body of Christ gathers together so that we can corporately worship the Lord. It's not holy in and of itself. There is nothing you can do to make this place holy. The holiness of God is in you as the body of Christ. Amen? Very important distinction because you will start worshiping buildings, which is exactly what happened, especially during medieval times in Europe. When you travel to Europe, you're going to see some fantastic representations of what people thought heaven would look like. And in fact, when you go to the Vatican, if you look at the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, the intent was this is kind of a heavenly picture. Here's God's finger. But the bottom line is it's just a building because God's presence isn't actually there. His presence dwells in you. If you want to look where the temple is on earth, it actually is you as a believer, It's us when we gather together. It's not buildings. It isn't edifices. And so in that sense, we can call this a house of God. It is where God's people gather. So it's kind of like God's home because we're here. But if you take us out of it, it's no longer God's home. It's just a concrete tilt-up building. You got to get that right. Because if you don't, then you start worshiping something that is just a picture, just like the Jewish people did. They worshiped the temple itself. One of the saddest things that will happen to you, and I don't want to discourage anybody, I want to encourage you to travel with us to go to Israel, which we have finally again rebooked our trip for fall of next year. We think that one's safe. But when you travel there, we go to the Hakutel, we go to the Wailing Wall, we go to the Western Wall. That is the world's largest and most holy spot in all of Judaism. But what is it actually? It is the remnant of the retaining wall of the former temple. And it is there that the Jewish people pour out their hearts and wail and cry and read scripture and tuck their prayer requests into the cracks of those 13 rows 
of Herodian stones that were nothing more than the same thing that's in your backyard that keeps your neighbor's dirt from coming into your yard. It's a retaining wall. That is what it is actually. But they're confused. They believe that actually has the presence of the Lord, just like they believed the temple that used to be on the Temple Mount was the dwelling place of the Lord, and temporarily it was. But when Jesus said to Telestai, it's finished, when he ascended unto heaven, he went back to from whence he came, and he has been there ever since. And so the heavenly sanctuary now is actually in the heavens. And so that tabernacle or the temple, either one, it doesn't matter which one you use, but in this case they're talking about the original tabernacle, which was the tent of the meeting, which God designed. The people got confused. They, They believed that the only place you could meet with God was there. God wants to meet with you every day and everywhere. Amen? He doesn't want you putting him away until you can come meet with him someplace. He wants to be with you and in you and around you at all times. He doesn't want to have this long-distance relationship to where if you were a Jewish person, you look forward to that maybe that one trip in a lifetime where you actually go to Jerusalem And you stand before this wall, and it is there that you feel as close as you've ever been to God. That's not where God is. Christ is in you. He's your hope of glory. And so to that end, there was an inferiority of the old covenant sanctuary. And there are five parts of this. And as you think on it, it was inferior because it was here on earth. What does that mean? Well, it was made by men. It was maintained by men. It was cleaned by men or not cleaned by men. If it's men and it was clean, probably wasn't cleaned. (laughs) Think about this for a minute. Wrap your head around this. Now, I'm not saying that some of us aren't a little more fastidious than others, but if you go to a college men's dorm, shield your eyes. It's not a good thing. That's why I believe the Bible says, and it's not good that a man should live alone. Because we're not actually good at taking care of things. Now imagine that God has actually given specifically and only to men, and I'm talking men, men, as in males, the task of not just building, but maintaining the temple. And that part of that is the slaughter of hundreds of animals every single day. And blood was put on virtually every part of the temple compound. It was sanctified by blood and then cleansed with water. Imagine a bunch of guys doing that. It was on earth. One of the reasons it was inferior is that God gave men the capacity to actually represent him here on earth. It's one of the things I fear as a pastor. God's given me the the challenge in my life to represent him in some degree before you all. That's going to leave me deficient in representing the true and the living God with perfection. 
I'm going to use a wrong word here or there. I'm going to mispronounce something. I, I may say something inadvertent. I am not perfect. And so in that sense, because it's here on earth, it will always be imperfect. A second thing, you, you don't look to something that's a type when you have visible in your heart the thing that is greater the, the Jewish people looked at these implements, these things that were inside of the tabernacle. They're listed for you here. The table of showbread. The incense altar that stood before the veil. The menorah, which was actually an oil lamp. It's not a candlestick. Those things couldn't save you. They were incapable. But people began to go, oh, what are we going to do? There's no table of showbread. Who's going to represent us before the Lord? The altar of incense. You see, the altar of incense served two purposes. It was the bridge between the outer sanctuary, the holy place, and the inner sanctuary, the most holy place. Because it was there that they took the coals from the altar to cleanse themselves before they went in. Representing exactly the same thing as when you pray to receive Christ. You're actually inviting Christ to dwell in you. They had to get that squared away before they went in. So it was inferior. And now you have the superior relationship because God is actually inside of you. Then it was a building. People literally had to go to Jerusalem because it was there that over the mercy seat, the presence of the living God met with one person once a year. So in that sense, it's very inferior. It was inferior because it was inaccessible to the average person. Think about this one. There was one person that was alive at all times during the time when Judaism reigned on this earth as the world's preeminent monotheistic religion. There was exactly one person, one, who could go in and meet with God. Out of all of humanity. And that person was a person. A human being. And furthermore, that person was only a Jewish man. So all you ladies, sorry. You couldn't meet with God. You needed to have somebody else meet with you. And for you. You would go talk to the, in the court of the women those prayer requests would be, then be taken to a man, and then the man would go in and offer up a sacrifice at the altar, and then another man would take that offering and would go into the court of men, and then from there it would finally end up, your request would make it inside of the holy place. And then one day a year, one guy. You talk about inferior because you can go straight to Jesus yourself right now. Amen? You don't need me or anybody else to do it. So it was inaccessible to everybody, not just the common people, which was also true. But furthermore, it wasn't available to anyone who wasn't a Hebrew. So it was actually racist in that sense. It was one race of people that could meet with God. Now, God, by his grace, allowed that to spread out to all of us. Amen? 
every tribe and tongue and nation. That wasn't what he wanted originally, but because of man's sin, that's what he allowed. Another thing, it was temporary. Go to Jerusalem today, you're not going to find a temple. And yet the Jewish people have never been relieved from the responsibility to go and offer at the temple. So now it's just spiritualized. Well, we, we want to do it. Well, you know what? If you read the Old Testament, it doesn't say anything in there about you wanting to make a sacrifice in the temple. It says you must, and it gives specific animals that need to be offered for specific things. It doesn't say, well, if you think about it hard, it'll be okay. Very inferior. It's temporary. And it was external, not internal. Now the Holy Spirit is with you wherever you go. So it's no longer you need to go to a place. It's a life that you now live. So it was truly an infinitely better place. Sometimes when you read these passages that you know, look at the Old Testament way of worshiping God, you almost want to say, well, it kind of sounds pretty holy. And it is. For the Jewish people, it was wonderful. But it was supposed to point them to the coming Messiah. The whole point was that these things would ultimately be insufficient. They couldn't do what they needed to do. That that light in that menorah was not the light of the world. That light in that menorah was a representation of the light that God wanted to shine on the world. And he would one day send his son. And his son would declare himself, I am the light of the world. By the way, standing on the steps of the temple. He's going, you, you can always picture Jesus going, you, you see that menorah over there? That's not the light of the world. The light of the world's right here. I'm standing in front of you. You see, all of these things were infinitely inferior compared to the reality of who we now are in Christ. When you entered into the Holy of Holies, the second place here in these first nine verses, when you entered in, there was nothing inside of there except for the Ark of the Covenant. This little tiny, now think about it, because we, we kind of have in our minds what this looked like. The Ark of the Covenant was three feet, nine inches long. It was about two feet, three inches wide and two feet, three inches high. And on top of that were two cherubim, two angels. This whole thing would only be about this tall. And it was there that the priest would come and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice. It's kind of anticlimactic, isn't it? Think about it for a second. You mean the whole of our relationship, our freedom from the sin, God putting away the sin, boils down to a gold-covered chest that you could stick in the trunk of your car. Not really all that majestic, is it? But to the Jewish people, because this is what God told them to do, and inside of that was Aaron's rod that budded, the pot of manna, and the actual Ten Commandments that Moses brought down from the mountain, it represented God to them. We don't have the representation anymore. We have the real thing. We have Christ in us now. Amen? 
It's not this little gold box. As beautiful as that was, as symbolic as that was, as glorious as it would have been there in the Holy of Holies, these things were all just a picture and thereby absolutely inferior. Verse 11, as we continue on. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. The good things to come. The things that would come through him. With a greater and more perfect tabernacle, here it is, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. You see, these deficiencies that you had under the old covenant are actually shown to be so much more superior in the new covenant, it it is almost staggering how much better it is. You see, it's better because it's heavenly and not earthly. It's real. Those sacrifices that were offered in that that temple were, were temporary. They only put away sin for a time. But the reality of it is, is we now have experienced that forgiveness. That tabernacle, think about it, that Moses built, directed to be built in the wilderness, was actually a tent. One of the reasons I believe Paul uses that that illustration of our mortality, these earthly tents, created for a time, they don't last forever, amen? Amen. You know, I, I've started, I don't know how many of you have age spots, but I, I can make, if I play connect the dots, it's, it's pretty awesome. It's like I used to have this, you know, nice tan, wear sunscreen. You know, we think about the, it's like we're going to live forever. If I'd have known how long I was going to live, I wouldn't have covered my body in cocoa butter when I was 15 years old. It's like you're boiling your skin in oil. These are earthly tents. They're not meant to last forever. They're in a constant state of entropy. They're decaying right before our very eyes. One day you're going to wake up. I never believed this until I actually got to this age. It's like people would say, oh, well, wait till you get to 60. Wait till, and then I, then I was told, it's not 60, it's 65. <laughs> wait till you get to 65. Then all of a sudden it's like, ow. It's like, what was that? That was not there yesterday. These are earthly tents. And all of a sudden, they start to break down. They weren't made to last forever, and neither was the temple on the Temple Mount or the tent of the meeting. They were temporary places where God met with mankind. And right now, your body is in the same way, the earthly tent where God meets with you here, but you have a heavenly homecoming. Amen? Amen? We look forward to that. How is it better? Because the new one's going to be heavenly, not earthly. It's almost the exact opposite. A second thing, verse 12. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered into the holy place. You see, the blood of the sacrifice that the high priest sprinkled was the blood of an innocent animal. But Jesus said, well, let's take care of this once and for all. Let's sprinkle my blood. 
Let me pay the price for those sins. Once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. In other words, the purchase price. That's what it cost. You want to know what it cost for you to be saved? It was Christ's life in your place. That's the cost of redemption. For the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctified for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, through who eternal, the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, to actually cleanse your conscience? Here it is. From dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant. By means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, those that are called may receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. In other words, Christ's ministry was effective to actually deal with the problem that we had. My problem was I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I was very much physically alive, but before God, I was a dead man walking. I was going to perish eternally. Without Christ, I still would perish eternally. But because of Christ, instead of the blood of bulls and goats, which could put away your sin temporarily, Christ's blood has cleansed me forever. I don't have any sin in my account anymore. Doesn't mean that I'm not a sinner, by the way. It means the sin is taken care of by the blood of the righteous one, Jesus. That is infinitely better than what they experienced in the Old Testament times in the tabernacle, in the wilderness, or the temple on the Temple Mount. You see, all of these things, when you think about them, point towards something that was completely without ability of anyone ever gaining it. You see, it was better, it was effective, because animal sacrifices don't compare to Christ's sacrifice, amen? Think about that one for a second. How many, how many goats... How many goats would it take to equate the value of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? The answer is there aren't enough goats on earth. That's ceremonial cleansing instead of an actual cleansed conscience before God. Think about that. So I've shared with you recently, one of the ways that you know a Jewish settlement archaeologically in Israel today is the presence of mikvahot, mikveh, ritual baths. When they find a ritual bath, that's a Jewish settlement. That's how they basically define them. Why? Because it was daily. Every single day, a Jewish man would be walking by and something would be unclean. There'd be, you know, a dead animal or they'd walk through a part of a settlement and there were Gentiles there. They were constantly becoming unclean. So they had to constantly be cleansed. Praise God, I'm no longer cleansed by the blood of bulls and goats. I'm cleansed by the living Son of God in me. Amen? It's a constant cleansing. I'm washed in his blood. My life is now seen by God as righteous because of Christ. I'm not wondering, man, I hope I make it to a mikveh today. I, I need to cleanse myself. Or how about the temporary blessings of the old covenant compared to the eternal blessings of the new one? The temporary blessings of the old covenant were actually wonderful. They would be 
rain would come and blessings would be poured out, bumper crops, protection from your enemies, uh, sickness would flee. All of those things are wonderful. But you know, beautifully blessed people still die. Your tent's still going to perish. You can't take it with you. So unless your sin problem is dealt with, you're still a walking dead person. And praise God that under the new covenant, I am completely cleansed in my conscience so God will allow me then to be in his presence because in Christ, he sees me as perfect. A third thing, it's better because it's based on the most costly sacrifice ever made. Verse 16, for where there is a testament, there also must be of necessity the death of the testator. Now, here's the way this works. If you have a last will, a testament, a trust, those things are not enforceable until you croak. Okay? So if you're still alive, you may have a last will and testament. It takes the death of the testator for them to be a reality. That's why your kids are trying to get you to take up parachute jumping when you're (laughs) 70. It's like, while you're still alive, it's no good. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? They're like, aren't you feeling a little sick, Dad? Just kidding. But you know what I'm getting at? The testator, whoever made the will, has to exit this planet in order for it to be enforced. For the testament is enforced after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. What happened to Jesus? He said, this is my blood shed for the remission of sin. He made a testament. He gave testimony And then he died. He made good on it. He said, what I said is now in force because I'm giving my life to make sure it's so. And therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats and water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself, the book of the law, the Torah, actually, And the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. And then he likewise sprinkled the blood on both the tabernacle and all the vessels. And according to the law, almost all things were purified by blood. Why? Because Leviticus 17 actually declares without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And so imagine this. How... Next week, if you come to church and you see somebody in here with some hyssop and a bowl of blood and they're sprinkling all the pews, what are you going to do? You're probably going to run, right? (laughs) Ooh, I just joined a cult. But that was necessary. It was a bloody business. It was awful. That's what had to be. It took the blood of innocent animals being sprinkled on everything. The walls, the stairs, the steps. The table of showbread, they would put it on the legs. Everything either got that or washed with water or burned in fire. I mean, it was, it was gnarly. You go to church and there it is, bleeding, dying sheep all day, every day. That's what it took. That's how awful your sin is. 
It pictured exactly how vile our sin is to God. Just keep killing stuff all day, every day. Because people keep sinning all day, every day. Aren't you glad Jesus died in your place? Amen. According to the law, almost all things purified with blood, for without the shedding of blood there's no remission, and therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. It was necessary before, but it's not necessary because of the cost that Jesus paid willingly for our sin. Jesus' words were very specific from the cross. Father, forgive them. He didn't say, Father, I'm atoning. He said, Father, forgive them. He said, to tell us die, it is finished. It's done. What needs to be no more bulls and goats. No more sacrifices of innocent animals. Father, I'm taking care of the whole thing right now. It's better because it was a complete fulfillment. It wasn't partial. It wasn't temporary. You see, sometimes we, we think that we still need to crucify ourselves. Can I just tell you, please stop? There's no crucifying of you that is going to add to what Jesus did. Christ came so that you didn't have to die. He died in your place. Amen? Verse 24, for Christ has not entered the holy places with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself to now appear in the presence of God for you. In other words, you don't need some man who first prays for himself and his family and the nation and goes in once a year and offers up some kind of sacrifice for you, you literally have Jesus in the presence of God on your behalf all day, every day. He's there right now talking to God about you specifically. That's the reality of the new covenant. There's complete fulfillment of that which was pictured in the Old Testament, Jesus made complete in the new. There's nothing that needs to be added to it. That's why you can't be saved by works. That's why the Apostle Paul said, by the works of the flesh, no one is justified. It's an impossibility. You can't add to the work that Jesus did on the cross. It's either complete or it's not done. Either Jesus did it all, or there's still something to do, and if it is, then it lies on you. Because that's exactly the way the Old Testament portrays man's responsibility. It was up to you. You had to go in and make the right sacrifices. And Jesus said, that's not working real well. Because mankind doesn't always do what mankind should do. Amen? Anybody got that problem? Don't raise your hand. Let's just assume that we all said yes to that one. We know to do good. That's why Romans 8 is so perfect for us. 
I know to do good, but that good that I know to do, I don't do, and the evil that I know not to do, that's what I do. Who will deliver me from that body of death? Praise God, Jesus did. Amen? That's why it's so superior. It's complete. It's total. There's nothing left for you to do. People sometimes come to you, well, I just want to, you know, I, I, I just want to make it real. Well, you make it real by really giving you to the Lord. Amen. Amen? That's how it happens. It isn't, it isn't like if you do certain things, it will be more real. Christ wants you. That's who he wants. He wants you. He loves you. It's complete One day you're going to stand before the Lord of heaven and earth clothed in righteousness. You're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Not because you went on a missions trip. Not because you were faithful in church attendance. Not because you memorized ten verses. Not because you constantly and always were mentioning the name of Jesus wherever you went. But because the blood of the Lamb has cleansed you from all unrighteousness. That's it. Now because of that, you're going to want to go on mission trips. And you're going to want to come to church. You're going to want to pray. You're going to want to memorize scripture. The Holy Spirit in you is going to go, let's do this thing. But you're not saved by doing anything. You're saved because Christ died in your place. We have to get that right, church. Because so often we just turn church into another form of works, which is what the Jewish people already had. It's better in its ministry because it is final and it is complete. Here's the last several verses. Verse 25. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. In other words, Jesus died once and for all. He would then have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now... Once at the end of the age, the end of the age of grace, he's appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men once to die, but after this judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Why does it say many? Because not all will believe. Many means all who will be saved. Anyone who will ask. If you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. But you got to ask. It's not automatic because your Aunt Susie was a believer and you stayed in her house for three days. It's not because you're an American. Let's square that one away, too. It's not because you were born in the USA that you're a Christian, it's not by church attendance. You have invited personally Jesus Christ to be your Savior and Lord. That's how you're saved. That's how you become one of the many. To those who eagerly wait for him, man, am I waiting for Jesus right now. 
It's just, that's my hope. I wake up every day. It's like, Lord, are you come back today? I still enjoy life. I still have things that I think the Lord wants me to do and us to do. But I look forward more and more to heaven. One day when this earthly travail is over and I see my Savior face to face and there's no more death and no more dying and no more sin, I can't wait for the lamb to lie down with the lion. I can't wait to get to heaven even if I have to be vegan. I don't want to stay here if I have to be vegan. Just want to make that clear. <laughs> I had a guy actually say, well, I don't know if I want to go to heaven. I'm pretty sure that Jesus can make some vegetable taste like bacon, okay? <laughs> It'll be fine. It's going to be okay. There's no death, no dying. There can't be any ham, all right? Why do I say that? Because he will appear a second time apart from sin. When Jesus comes back, he's dealing with sin permanently, forever. Amen? That's the world's problem for salvation to all who would believe. Jesus completed the job. It's that simple. It's done. That's all you need. You need Jesus. If you notice the word appear here in these last Four verses. He has appeared, choose three times, to put away sin by dying on the cross. He's appearing now in heaven for us. And one day he shall appear to take you home. Amen. Amen. Those three tenses of our salvation is all there are. He put away your sin. That includes your past, by the way, and your present and your future. He is right now making intercession for you, so he's appearing now, right now, before God the Father at the throne of heaven on your behalf, and he is going to see you again face to face. That's why Job said what he said. He said, I know that I will stand on this earth one day and I will see my God face to face. Confidence in who we are. Jesus completed all that needs to be done. He's already appeared to take care of the sin debt. He's appearing before God on your behalf right now. And one day he's going to appear to you. You're going to be able to see the scars in his hands. You'll be able to look at the imprints on his feet. You'll see his nail-pierced side and you will say, thank you, Jesus. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me and we'll close in prayer. If you've never invited Christ into your life, you don't get to heaven because you came to church. That sacrifice is only sufficient if you ask for it to be sufficient. You have to make a profession of faith. And if you're here today and you haven't done that, please don't leave this place without inviting Christ into your life. Because that sacrifice required the death of the testator. Jesus had to die. But what he said was, he who lives and believes in me, though he or she shall one day die, yet they shall live. That's the promise of eternal life. 
but it's only good to those who believe. And so I'm going to invite you right now to make sure that you know Jesus. For those of you that do, just simply thank God for the salvation that you have. But if you don't, you can ask Christ into your life right now and know that your eternity is secure. So let's bow our heads. If you're here today and you want to know Jesus, I'm going to just simply ask you to raise your hand right where you're at. And we're going to pray together. See that hand in the back? Anyone else? It's not about you doing something. Jesus did the doing, but you need to acknowledge what he did. And you need to thank him for it. Anyone at all? Father, we thank you. Lord, we have to believe that those that are standing here before your throne of grace, Lord, just figuratively, we we are in your presence right now. And we pray for those that maybe they don't have the boldness to slip that hand up, but they really want to know you. God, would you, by your Holy Spirit, convince them that Jesus, your son, died on Calvary's cross in their place, shed his blood to sacrifice himself for the cost of their sins. And Lord, would you cause them to cry out to you to forgive their sin? Would you dwell with them? Lord, we thank you for those of us that know you, for that peace that we now have, that your sanctuary goes with us where we go, that your love has been cast out upon us in such a great measure that one day uh, we'll experience the fullness of that when we get to heaven. In the meantime, make us like you, Jesus. Lord, thank you for forgiving our sin. Lord, we invite you to change us. Mold us into your image, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.